And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there also. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. Church, good morning. Let's pray as we begin to give our attention to God's word. Well, Father, we've gathered this morning and we pray now that you would incline our hearts toward you and not towards worthless things. Lord, when we gather, there's so many things that preoccupy us, distract us, lure our thoughts away. But as we gather before you, incline us to yourself. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. Lord, unite our hearts that we might fear you, God. Help us to have a singularity of devotion and love and loyalty to you. And would you satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad before you. Maybe we leave this place being your happy, joyful children who are grateful to be in relationship with you and to love and serve others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So growing up, my father traveled a lot. So it would not be uncommon for dad to be gone for a week or two at a time and come home on the weekends. And one summer evening-ish afternoon, my mom had gone to work. She used to work at a department store. It was called Hills. It was in western New York. It's kind of like a Target. I was like 10 or 9 years old, and I had two older sisters. They were gone. They were probably supposed to be babysitting, but they were gone. And so I had the place completely to myself. If you've ever seen the original show, The Wonder Years, like that was my neighborhood. <laughs> Tons of kids. I mean, my ho- the house is Western New York, blue collar, super modest homes. You can pretty, if you stretched far enough, you could hit both houses on either side of my home. Tons of kids. We were always riding bikes in, each, in the neighborhood, building jumps, swimming in each other's pools, eating out of each other's refrigerators. Like there's just this roaming mass of us that just would go from house to house to house. So of course, when I had the house to myself, I had all my buddies over, including that one cute girl from the other neighborhood that I was really into who had no interest in me. <laughs> my mom, I still remember, she used to, she wouldn't make like individual chocolate chip cookies. She would make like whole pans of them, like two big, huge pans, kind of like, I guess, blondies or something like that. My friends and I, we crushed those brownies. We cranked the music. We were swimming in the pool, and I can remember specifically the one point where I had my head out my bedroom window, and I was like yelling at all my friends on my front yard. They're just teeming kids. 
It was awesome. But then it all abruptly changed. My dad had flown into town early that week, and a cab had dropped him off, but I didn't know that. So as I'm yelling and yucking it up with my friends on my front lawn, I turn around, and dad's there. You, you know that feeling. <laughs> dad's home equals the party is over. In a split second, the vibe went from total summer freedom to restriction. And I can still see my father standing in the doorway of my bedroom. And he knew he had startled me. And he just had this big smile on his face. And with this like joyful, playful tone, he said, we having fun here, bud. You see, though, with his demeanor and with his words, my father was communicating something to me. He was saying, Jason, that's what this place is for. I'm glad to come home and see you enjoying yourself. My dad had come home from a week of travel and work, and he wasn't there to shut the party down. He was there to actually join us. He was happy to come home and see kids being kids. We weren't doing anything wrong. We were just being kids, having fun on a summer night, and that made my dad happy. You see, I too often, and you do the same thing, you see God the way I saw my dad standing in my bedroom door that night. God's here to shut the party down. But if we would give attention to his word, so often we find that our thoughts about God are so very different than what he presents himself to be in his word. So if you're a guest this morning, we've been going through the book of Genesis on Sunday mornings. We're studying it together. We're now going into Genesis 2. But in Genesis 1, we keep on repeatedly seeing God said this, and God did this, and God did this. In chapter 2, the, the name of God expands. So it's not just God. Now in chapter 2, we read of the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. So what chapter 2 is, is it's a narrowing in. We're not in the cosmos anymore. We're not doing this wide, broad brush stroke of the world. We're narrowing in to where the Lord God, the Yahweh Elohim, the covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God, who has pledged himself to Israel, his chosen ones. I'm going to protect you and care for you and love you and redeem you. The Lord God is now narrowing in to create an environment in which he will develop and cultivate a relationship with his kids. That's what this is. It's a narrowing in. And far from this stingy, restrictive, killjoy kind of God that you and I create in our minds, what we find here could not be a God more generous and more loving and intentional and kind and more eager to create this space that he and his people could thrive in. I, 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 I got to be honest, I have been so freshly struck this week as I've studied and meditated and prayed on this text of just the, the goodness and the kindness and the love of God. I mean, it's incredible, guys. When we dig into this, it is incredible. The extravagance, the, the luxury of God's grace 
The, the wisdom, the, the sheer brilliance of God to, to make such a world that we would thrive in. And the Bible tells us that the kindness of God, what is it supposed to do? It's supposed to lead us to repentance. So a passage then that shows us the, the extravagant kindness and love and goodness of God, what does it ought to make us do? It ought to incline our hearts to him. It ought to lead us to a deepening trust and obedience to God. The kindness of God is meant to lead us into a deepening relationship, a repentant, obedient, trusting relationship with him. Not with this notion that God is some God who's trying to restrict you, but that trusting and obeying him is the very pathway to your flourishing. I want to look at this text from two different angles this morning. First is the place that God makes for his people. And secondly, the purpose that he gives. So the place and the purpose. Those will be two main points this morning. So first, the place. The place is this garden in an area called Eden. And we learn a lot just from the name alone. Eden. Right? It means delightful. It, it's oftentimes associated with a state of satisfaction, of happiness, of, of bliss, of contentment. It's literally paradise. And the place is in the east, it says. So in the east from where? Remember, Moses is the original writer and Israel's the original audience, and they're in the west. They're in the wilderness, in this hot, arid, dry place and Moses is reminding them of Yahweh Elohim, who is the God who creates luscious, luxuriant, gracious spaces for them to be in. He's reminding them of their Redeemer God. The garden is in the east, and it is beautiful everywhere you look. So my friends Sarah, Jeff, and Vicky and I, we recently went to Longwood Garden. And it's been a while since I've been there. And I just remember thinking and saying aloud several times, like, why do I not come here more often? This place is, like, awesome. And I'm not even, like, a gardener. Like, but there's just something about being there. Like, everything is so meticulously manicured. Everything is so intentionally placed. Like, the best botanical minds have created a space that just invites you in. Like, you want to be there. Friends, if that's what the human mind could do, what could the mind of Almighty God do in creating a space, a place for his people to dwell in? This place was beautiful, inviting, luxurious. Not only beautiful, but edible. <laughs> this is like real-life Charlie and the Chocolate Factory stuff. Like everything you saw, just about everything you saw, you could eat. And it wouldn't just be like, oh, that's good. It'd be like, oh my goodness, have you tried this yet? You have to have this. This is incredible food. When we were in Maine, I, Vicky and the kids and I are just getting back from vacation. And we were in Maine, we did this thing called a low country boil. Have you heard of this before? So if you haven't, it's basically this huge pot full of all this kinds of seasoning and potatoes and corn and sausage and shrimp. It's just like, just even thinking about it right now, my mouth is like water. So you cook all this stuff and then you drain the water and then we had two huge picnic tables with paper all on them and you drain the water and then you dump all the food out and then you just sit there and feast. Guys, it was awesome. 
like we're in, in, in beautiful Maine, looking over this lake that we, we stay on, eating all of this amazing food, and we're doing it with some of the people that we love most in this entire world. And, and we kept on like just like laughing and, and just like, oh my goodness, this is so good. Why? Because God designed it to be that way. That's what Eden would have been like, just feasting on this incredible food in this incredible place with people that you love. And the cherry on top of it all was that they did that in friendship with God. Four rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, we know them, which likely indicates that Eden was somewhere probably near modern-day Iraq. Okay, the Fertile Crescent area. You remember studying that in geography. These other two rivers, the Pishon and the Gihon, we're not sure about, but the exact location is not the main point. The main point of the description of these rivers is that there is an abundance of life-giving water here. And not only that, but this area is so richly fertile with all of these minerals and resources. The gold there is not only just gold, it's good gold and bdellium and onyx, which is to say when God went for it here, I mean, he really went for it. Like he did not spare any expense. He luxuriously, extravagantly, opulently poured out. Like when I'm zeroing in on a place for my kids, I'm going for it. And, and, and we learn that rivers in the Bible are, it's just not about irrigation, right? Psalm 46, there's a river that flows through the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. So throughout the Bible, we begin to see that rivers actually indicate the life-giving, protective, joy-producing presence of God himself. That's why Jesus talks about abundance of living waters, right? That's the presence of God in his people. So these rivers are indicating that this place is so extravagantly beautiful. The food and the scenery is so inviting and so delightful. And, and the company that we were keeping there with God himself was paradise. What could possibly go wrong? We're less than 10 verses away from all of this going south. Sin is really insanity. Sin is spiritual insanity. Your sin and my sin, just like Adam and Eve's sin, is spiritual insanity. It makes no sense. If there was something lacking in the garden, okay, maybe. I could go looking elsewhere. But everything, guys, everything was there. And in a temptation, in a moment, in a choice, Adam, Eve, you, me, we cash in on the goodness of God for the puny, paltry, self-destructive, temporal, fleeting pleasures of sin. It's insane. It really is. And only God can deliver us from this. 
See, what Moses is doing is he's reminding Israel in their wilderness wanderings as a result of sin of the goodness of God. Yahweh Elohim, their redeemer, their covenant keeper. And when we move through the Bible, Ezekiel does the same exact thing. Instead of wilderness wanderings, he's ministering and speaking to the people of Israel who have been exiled for their sin. Listen to what Ezekiel says. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Do you see what Ezekiel's doing? Ezekiel is describing a river flowing from the temple in the east where the presence of God was. Further on, in the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Do you see what Ezekiel is doing? He's reminding exiled Israel of their covenant-keeping Yahweh Elohim who's trying to bring them back into the garden. All of us long for this. It doesn't matter where you're from, who you are, what country or nation you live in, there's something deep in the heart of every man, woman, and child that longs to be in paradise. We instinctively know that there's something that's not right about this world. And we have a craving, a deep craving to be in the place that just everything is right. It's all just good. Which is to say that inside of your heart and mine and every human being that's ever lived in the entire history of the nation and our country and our world has a deep longing to be in paradise. Which is curious because when we get to the Gospel of Luke and Jesus is there hanging on the cross, two thieves are on either side of him. One thief mocks him. The other thief humbles himself before him. And to the humble thief, Jesus says what? Today, you will be with me in paradise. You know, the longer I live and we are married and have raising kids and ministry and life, family, like the more I realize there are so many ways to get lost in life. Like there really are. My sin, the sins of others, distractions, temptations, trials, opportunities. Like there are so many ways that I find that it's so easy to wander away from God. Aren't you glad that he makes the way back? Very simple. There's only one way. So what Moses is doing, what Ezekiel is doing, what Jesus is doing, what God is doing through his prophets is he's saying, listen to me, there's only one way back into paradise. You have to come through me. You have to come through the Jesus that has come to save and to redeem you. It's only through him that we find our way back into the garden. Do you see? You see, this is an invitation. And I think mainly that's what this text is offering to us. It's a simple invitation from God and says, will you trust me and do it my way? Or will you, thinking that you know what's best, do it your way? Those are your options. And through Jesus, he's offering, God himself is offering us all an invitation to come to him, 
Just like that thief on the cross, I got nothing. Like, I'm here because I'm supposed to be here. I don't know what you're doing here. He didn't know who Jesus was. He didn't have all these theological truths narrowed in. He had no idea about the things that we know today. He just knew that somehow, some way, he's the way in, and I'm with him. Have you done that? Have you personally done that? I might not know all that I need to know about Christianity. I just know this. Jesus lived a life that I could never live. He died the death that I deserved to die. And he rose again, and through him, he offers me, if I trust in him, I will have eternal life in paradise with him. Have you done that? I'm going to move on to the second point, but just a couple more comments before I do. Notice, look back at verse 8. It talks about the Lord God, and towards the end of the verse there, and there he put the man whom he had formed. He repeats that in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him. You see that word put. Now in the Hebrew, that's very closely connected to the word for rest. So we might say God rested Adam in the garden. God placed him in the garden. There's a sense in which this place that God has made that Adam would find great contentment and joy by doing the things that God called him to do. He, he placed him and rested him in the garden. Where has God rested you? Where has he placed you? I think there are two truths that it's wise of us to remember when it comes to the places that God has put us in. First, we should experience joy there, right? There, there should be an aspect of the roles that you occupy, the things that you fill your time doing, whether it's vocational or otherwise, that the place that God has you in, there should be a pursuit and an enjoyment of God's goodness to you there. There should be a sense of satisfaction. And yeah, this, this, there's something right about where I am right now. We're going to come back to that in a second. Here's the second truth. On this side of the fall, friends, there's always going to be aspect to work that's going to be hard. Thorns and thistles are coming. Right? So that's to say that just because life in some area, whether it's vocationally or otherwise, just because it's hard, that doesn't mean you should quit. It just means that you're still living in the real world. It doesn't mean that God hasn't placed you there. It just means there might be things that he's trying to teach you that you otherwise would not learn when things were going all great. You see, unlike Eden, we are living now in a world that's mingled with beauty and with pain. There's a lot to this earth that we can still really enjoy that was there in the garden. A lot. But there's also a lot in the world that's really, really hard. It's a world mingled. And I think part of finding contentment in the place that God has put us here and now is realizing we're not in heaven yet. Life can be very frustrating when you're constantly looking around the next corner to finally find contentment. 
It can be very difficult to be happy or joyful when you're focusing on all that you don't have to the neglect on all that God has given to us to enjoy, can it? And when our mindset to every trial or interruption is, I don't have time for this. I don't have time for this. We betray that we really truly don't understand the doctrine of sin or the doctrine of redemption. When we, when we come to expect or think that we deserve nothing but ease in this life, we betray the fact that we don't quite understand that we're not there yet, but we will be. Here, it's mingled with beauty and pain. In the new creation, it will only be beauty. Here, our best day is tainted if for no other reason than the day is going to come to an end. Right? Now, I love you, so don't take this wrong, the wrong way, okay? But on driving home from vacation, I did not want to come back to you. <laughs> I mean, it was probably one of the best vacations I've had in as long as I can remember. Like, it was just awesome. I'm so grateful. But you know that feeling when you come off a of vacation, got to go back to work tomorrow. It's a bummer. <laughs> now, track with me for a second. I'm speculating here, but... You and I, we're not going to be God, ever. Only God is God. And God is infinite. So even with the new bodies that we're going to have in, in glory, God is still only going to be God. Which I think means we are going to have the capacity to continue to enjoy him forever and ever and ever. You're following what I'm saying? So your best day in heaven is only going to be enhanced by the sheer fact that tomorrow I'm going to have a little bit more capacity to enjoy God and everything that he's given to me. So it's not going to be tainted by, oh man, it's over. It's going to be enhanced by, oh my goodness, like for all of eternity, this is only going to get better. So listen, though, here's what this doctrine is supposed to help us to do. This is, why, this is how Paul uses it. We have to learn how to use the doctrines of Scripture in the way that Scripture uses them. So Paul talks about light and momentary afflictions. And what he's doing is he's saying we live now in the not ready, but we're going to be in the already soon. So toughen up. <laughs> okay? This is how God creates resilience and perseverance in us. You, you don't live in heaven yet. Life is going to be hard. That's the world that we live in, okay? Keep on going, though, because just like someone who has this incredible inheritance just up the way, he doesn't get all bent out of shape because he's got a flat tire and he's got to change it on 95. I'm changing the flat tire, but I'm going to my inheritance, Amen. right? That's not to minimize your trial. I know life is hard. But the doctrine of redemption is supposed to say, yes, I know it's hard, but praise God, I have heaven to look forward to. The way to paradise has been opened to me, and that's where I will be. Amen. Okay, point two. We can't have heaven on earth, but we can taste it now. And the way we taste it is through fulfilling the purpose that God's given us in Christ, okay? So, Point one, the place that God has made. Point two, the purpose that God gives to Adam. Verse 15, we learn that God put Adam in the garden to work and to keep it. 
So Adam was made from, from the earth, and he was uniquely gifted to ser literally serve the earth. That's what keep means, to serve. Organize, guard, protect it. And this was God's kindness to Adam. It gave him a purpose. Work is in the garden before the fall. Which means that work was part of what made paradise, paradise. We get this all twisted. Work is a huge bummer for us. Some of us, and oftentimes most of us. But to work is to be like God. Notice God's planting in the garden here. He's literally getting his hands dirty. So there's something very God-like about working. Work is not a bad thing. In fact, that's what Adam is going to do. He's going to get his hands dirty. He's a gardener. Work is, this is maybe a working definition for work. It's work is bringing order to what you've been given according to your gifts and abilities to do good to others. Work is bringing order to what you've been given, the raw materials, if you will, that you've been given according to the gifts and the abilities, the talents, the skills that God has gifted you with in order to do good for others. So moms and dads picking up kids, talk about bringing order to chaos. You're, you're, you're doing God-like work. Carpenters, business leaders, librarians, professors, lifeguards, chefs, lawyers, doctors, nurses, pastors. We're working. We're organizing. We're learning. We're bringing order to. We're using our gifts and our skills to give service to other people. But don't think for one minute that like somehow what I'm doing on Sunday mornings is less spiritual than whatever you do throughout the week. It's not. If you get something from a pastor's sermon, praise God. If you flush your toilet and it works because some plumber put it there to work the right way, praise God. Do you see what I'm saying? There's a, br there's a brilliance of God in this. Like, so there's joy in the doing of the work because when you do it, Using what you've got to bless others, there's joy for me as I'm doing what I'm doing right now. And there's joy in the receiving of it. Just like there's joy when the plumber installs my toilet, and when I flush it, I walk out of the bathroom and everything goes on just as normal. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? There's joy in the doing and joy in the receiving. The wisdom of God, he's, he's just brilliant. But we get this all jacked up. We make our work about status. We make our work about money. We make our work about our identity. That's why so many of us are all burned out, frustrated, bored, hollow, depressed, anxious, because we've got work all wrong. Jabari Parker, he used to play for the Boston Celtics. He said, basketball is what I do. It's not who I am. You can fill in that blank. A mom is what I do. I mother my children, but it's not who I ultimately am. A business leader, a teacher, you fill in the blank. This is what I do, but it's not who I am. God gives further purpose with the command that he gives. Look at verse 16. The command is first permissive. You can have everything here, including the tree of life. It's all yours. Everything is yours. 
then it's prohibitive. Don't eat from this one tree. First, prohibit, or first permissive, then prohibitive. Why this prohibition? Why this tree? Why even put it there? It gave Adam purpose. He was a ruler. He was not the ruler. He was created by God, and he was created for God. His purpose would be fulfilled as he enjoyed the, the work that God gave him to do in humble submission to God. That was his purpose. And with this tree, Adam was taught, and Eve as well, that they were free moral agents. They could choose to obey or disobey. Don't we honor our adult children this way? There comes a transitional moment when you don't treat your kid the same when he or she becomes a functioning adult. You still parent them. You advise them. You tell them of the consequences of making certain decisions. And it, it dignifies them. It, it honors them. It shows them, no, you're an adult now. I'm not controlling your life. The choice is yours. You're going to reap the benefits, and you're going to reap the consequences. You choose. There's a dignity in that. That's what God is doing here. He's giving Adam and Eve dignity. This is what will happen. All of this is before you. Do this, follow me, and you will live. If you do this, you're going to die. Our purpose, friends, is to surrender to God and to live according to what he has clearly told us his will to be in the Bible. That's what your purpose is. You will find purpose in life if you surrender to God and follow his clear will that's described to us in this book. And undoubtedly, somebody wants to call a timeout right now. Like, don't we have ample evidence of the abuse of power in church, or in business, or in government. So when you start using language of surrender, that makes me real uncomfortable. To which we would have to say, fair enough. Like, we've all experienced it or witnessed the abuse of leadership. Leadership that's been manipulative, deceptive, Leadership that, that preys on people for their own power, their own wealth, their, their own status. But is it fair to jump from those experiences to a suspicion of God? Is it fair to jump from the abuse of power to regurgitated mantras such as religion is the opiate of the masses? It's the Bible and God and all this Christianity stuff. The only thing it's really designed to do is keep sheepish, uninformed, gullible people under your control. Is that fair? Well, I think if the verdict of, uh, on God is still out for you, I hope that you will give him a fair hearing. I hope you'll give God a fair, intelligent hearing. Because here we find a God that has all power, all authority, all wisdom. He's infinite in every way. He's self-existent. There's nothing outside of God himself that he needs. Which means, why would he try to manipulate or coerce or cajole us? Like, it makes no sense. What, what do you have that you're going to give to God? What do I have that God needs? Nothing. There's no reason for God to manipulate and to abuse his power. 
Secondly, we find here in a God whose inclination, his disposition is to bless and to give and to be generous and luxuriant in his care and his kindness. That's the God of the Bible. His inclination, God is love. That's what the Bible teaches us. It does not teach us that God is wrath. By our sin, we have to provoke God to wrath. And guess what? It takes a lot to provoke God because he's slow to anger. So we have to provoke God to anger. We never have to provoke him to love. He is love. And so his disposition toward you is to love you and care for you and be kind to you. And the pinnacle of that is when he comes to you in the person of Jesus Christ, he comes not to take something away from you. He comes to serve you and to give himself as a ransom so that you could enter paradise. Do you see what I'm saying? God, God is not a manipulative, killjoy God. He's a generous God who comes onto the scene to lay his life down that we might find true joy and peace. This is why surrendering to God is the only wise way to live. It kind of reminds me of that movie, Ready Player One. Have you seen that? Like, there's all these gamers who are trying to win the game, right? And in the course of the game, it's like this virtual thing. Everyone's getting all busted up, and they're, they're losing repetitively. But the goal is to, like, win the game, obviously, right? But to win the game, you have to play it the way that the designer of the game has made it to work. And in the designer's mind, it's paradoxical. To go forward, you got to go backward. To win, you have to actually play by his rules. Isn't there an overlap with Christianity? It's so often, Christianity is so paradoxical. To live, you got to die. To be exalted, you have to humble yourself. To be free, you have to become a slave. You see, the whole world is rigged, guys. It's rigged for your enjoyment and your flourishing and your contentment and your peace. You have to do it the way that the designer has made it to work, though, right? But the problem is, is we go our own way. And this is increasingly normalized. Carl, Trum uh, Carl Truman calls this the, 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 the age of the rise and the triumph of the modern self, which is maybe slightly a misnomer because there's nothing modern about this. Okay, it's right here in Genesis. The issue at root is autonomy. Will I do it God's way or will I do it my way? What's being celebrated now in our day and our age, though, is that what's best for me is what's celebrated. What, the Self-expression is the ultimate goal. I determine what is right and wrong. I determine what my gender and sexuality will be. I determine what's true and false. Self-expression is the primary goal. So not only is it not popular to contradict that, it's seen as oppressive. How dare you put that opinion down because the goal is self-expression. Don't you dare oppress that. But what if the means of that self-expression, and I'm not just thinking sexuality here, I'm thinking all morality. What if the means of that self-expression is actually destructive? What if the means by which you're trying to find self-fulfillment actually leads you in the very opposite direction? 
What if what awaits you is depression and anxiety and addiction and suicide? What if there was a truth? What if there was the truth that actually was given to you to show you the true way to life and peace and satisfaction? That's what the God of Genesis does. That's what the Bible is for. In the garden, there were only two paths. Trusting God, surrendering him was the path to life and flourishing. If you eat of this tree, you will die. Two options. You can have life or you can have death. Which will you choose? Some of us are finding ourselves, and we all do this, right? We wrestle with God over things, specific areas of life. We, we tend to hyper-focus on the things that we don't have, we really want outside of the boundaries of where God has placed us, and we neglect all the things that he's given to us to enjoy. We all wrestle with this. Should I trust God and do it his way, or should I go my own way and do what I think is best and write in my own eyes? Guys, we know how this ends, right? You know how it ends when you go your own way. We, we have tons of experience in this. But we do it again and again and again. What if we already go astray? What if the wrestling is over? We've just gone headlong into it. We've given in to the temptation. We're, we're stuck in sin. We're not teetering. We're stuck. Well, I think it's fitting that the good news we need to hear again and again and again, the process of our rebirth, it involves a tree. Right? Peter tells us that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The first Adam chose to do it his way and death ensued. The second Adam chose to do it God's way and eternal life consumed. Through a tree, a man falls from grace. Through a tree, man is restored to grace. So the first step always, the effective way that we resist sin or recover from sin always comes back to Jesus. We cannot live apart from him. We cannot pursue righteousness. We cannot recover from sin. We cannot resist temptation apart from abiding in him. And go figure, as we abide in him, we bear much fruit. You see all over the Bible, this Edenic concept is just reiterated again and again and again. God's aim is for us to thrive and, and to grow and to bear fruit. And that's only done in Jesus. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Let me have the band come back up. After the fall, God forbids Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of life. Right? We're going to learn about that. And that is actually his grace, right? Because it would have been torturous for Adam and Eve in their rebellious state to live and feast off the tree of life, to live eternally in that state. It would have been torturous. So God actually was graciously forbidding them to eat from that tree. But that's not the last time we see the tree of life. In Revelation 22, the tree of life reappears. So in the opening chapters of the Bible, the tree of life. In the closing chapter of the Bible, the tree of life. And there, this is what we read. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. That's Ezekiel. This is the fulfillment of what Ezekiel was prophesying to Israel. 
God bringing his people back into the garden. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. Friends, something better than Eden awaits us. Jesus, by his cross and resurrection, he's made a way for us to enter again into the garden of God. That's our place. That's where you and I will fulfill our ultimate purpose, to love God, to serve him, to enjoy him in unending days together as his people. So let's let the kindness of God lead us to an ever-deepening trust and obedience to him as our loving, good, heavenly father. God help us all.